podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome back to the podcast where none of us have actually yet ruled out replacing Philip Schofield, but we may have to in the very near future. This is Tennis Unfiltered. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. I'm James Gray of the iNewspaper and iNews.co.uk. I've got Calvin Betton, our tennis coach, and George Belshaw, our tennis player. I say tennis player. Injured amateur tennis whacker uh, and sometime tennis writer, broadcaster, and general man about town, uh, George Belshaw, of course. Uh, We've got loads to get through today, but there really is only one place to start. And I know I always say that, but there really is because last week Rafa Nadal ruined my day off by calling a press conference at short notice and I subsequently had to sacrifice my afternoon on the golf course and settle down to not speaking Spanish and uh, instead having to try and finagle my way through Rafa Nadal's bilingual press conference. Uh, in it, he said uh, that he would not be playing the French Open, that he would be taking between six weeks and four months away from the tennis court to allow his hip to recover and he said that he will probably finish his career in 2024. I don't like the word, but I feel strong enough to say it. I don't think I deserve to end like this. I've worked hard enough throughout my career for my end not to be in a press conference, which actually makes it sound like he probably could have retired there and then. He says, I'm going to try to make my last year not just a party. I'm going to try to compete at the highest level, give myself the option to try and compete and win tournaments on this clay tour. The reality is that we'll just have to wait for that. Um... George, any chances a final flourish, or is this literally just going to be a farewell tour? I mean, there's always a chance. Um, if he can get his body in a decent position, and you know, he probably needs his body at about 75% to still be a pretty big threat on the clay court. Um, but, you know, we, we had a question, didn't we, from someone a few weeks ago saying, did we think he could win the Olympics in Paris next year? And, you know, it you'd have the chances quite low at the minute and you just get more and more fearful that this may this may be it um you know i i guess there's a degree to which it's always harder when you're working towards a timeline you know he he thought he was going to be ready for the start of the clay and then he had that setback didn't he which has kind of ruined it i suppose if he kind of starts total recovery and rest now not really having that pressure he might even write off the rest of this year to be honest um, and kind of just consider doing wild cards next year. You know, we don't really know to what extent this problem is, but, you know, he can have a, a kind of elongated period of rest, make sure he's perfectly ready, and then try and get going again start of next year. But, yeah, he he's not a young man anymore. <laughs> it's not going to be easy to just bounce back. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm fairly fearful for him. I'd be quite surprised if he if he won a major again, to be honest. Obviously, that you know, that's probably not a great statement to say but um you, you never know he's he's so good but this is feeling very much like curtains and closer to be going out with a whimper than a bang yeah i this is the way the world ends yeah the uh, t.s Eliot line uh, i i sort of read that comment the, the thing about i don't feel like i deserve to end like this as though it really was a genuine conversation to have had before it going right well is this is this it and 
I suppose what we've learned about this this generation of players is that all of them have looked at retirement as something, you know, a fate worse than a fate worse than death, and that there is nothing that they won't do to try and delay it. Um, Federer went through so many phases of that, you know, final stage where he was putting off various knee surgeries and then he had another knee surgery and then played that Wimbledon where he clearly wasn't fit and then tried to come back again and, you know, Murray's doing the same thing now. And I wonder if Nadal, you know, when he says he's probably going to finish in 2024, Calvin, I, I sort of remember that Murray press conference when he broke down in tears in Australia and said... I think this is the last one. And of course, it t- turned out not to be. You two just in a Murray impression off. You? <laughs> <laughs> well, you just sound like a Scottish man who has laryngitis. But, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I think it, look, it's it's particularly tough for, ten- for sports people. And I think in particular tennis people, because this is not like any other job that you retire from. And it's not, in many ways, it's not really like any other sport because it's it's dominated their life from around about being about five or six years old. Because these guys who are playing to that level, their whole life from about five or six, because people would have known that Federer, Nadal, Murray, Djokovic, even five or six, that they'd have known we're looking at elite level talents here. So their entire life since that age has been about getting better at tennis and winning tennis matches. So it's not like, you know, nobody knows what they're going to do at six years old. No one knows that you, you don't start your career at six unless kind of unless you're a tennis player. Um, even footballers, they, they start going to football, but they're basically, you know, they don't know anything there. But, but these guys, that is what they do. So it's like we're now looking at something that we've never had to contemplate from basically from our earliest memory not from school or anything like that. This, is, this has been our entire focus the entire time. And it's not really at an age where you think, well, I've only got like, you know, when you retire, you probably think I've got 20 years left here. They're, these guys are only in their mid-30s. And, and they have, and it's a complete change of life that's coming. So you can kind of get why they're, they're very reluctant to do it. Yeah, I think, I think you mentioned Murray there. I, I was really struck by his calls with people like Leighton Hewitt, for example, you know, Hewitt's not that dissimilar in age to Federer, but feels like a different generation because he packed it in so early. And he, he spoke so much about how, how hard it had been to kind of step away and lose all that and find it so difficult. Has he actually you retired know. yet? Or is he still taking yeah, I know. double time? <laughs> <laughs> I know. He, he seems like a weird example in some ways, but you know, it, in, in many ways, this generation have had a lot more kind of, longevity than others and done kind of incredibly well um and murray is a good example of someone who is kind of happy to keep going it seems even though he's probably accepted he's not gonna be close to what he was again um but i don't know if like longevity actually then makes it harder and harder to walk away um you know i feel like it was accepted 10 years ago you get to 30 you're done, basically. You might get to 33, that's fine. I know there were exceptions in the past, like Rose Wall, etc. But on the whole, it wasn't weird for people like Roddick and Henman to hang it up at like 32, 33, only 15 years ago. Whereas these guys now, I don't know, it, it feels like if you don't get to 38 anymore, you're kind of like, oh man, you've not it's, made the most of it. And it's hard. It's kind of a weird situation though now for Nadal, I think, because he doesn't strike me as the kind of person who, again, people don't change. He's a competitor. He's a winner. 
and you don't just change. I can't imagine any case that he's going around thinking next year I just want to go and do a bit of a tour and visit the venues. Yeah. He's going to be thinking about winning tournaments. That that's what he's coming back for. He's going to think what's the best way that I can have a year at the very elite level of the game again. But to do that, there's a chance that he probably has to do almost no tennis or training for the remainder of this year. And by doing that, are you then re reducing the chances? that you can basically just start training again in maybe mid-November, mid say, for Australia. Um, but then you're taking, he's taking almost nine months off there uh, without doing anything. But that probably gives him the best chance of being fit for the remaining year of his career. I mean, is it going to be a year? I mean, is he kind of just thinking, actually, I want, I want three good months. I want Monte Carlo to the French Open and then maybe get the olympics no, no you know, is, is I, that I don't kind of what he wants i think he will certainly go to the u.s open i would think because i think that's just his mindset i don't think you know his mindset is how am i going to win he's he's a he's a born winner they don't that doesn't change that doesn't change just because you've picked up some injuries he's thinking how can I, he's probably weighing it what's he on now 22 slams yeah he's probably thinking how can i get to 26 <laughs> that, that, that's that's the best way that's that's the way that those people think that, that it doesn't change they don't have logic and that's why they're so good and is it, i guess that mindset probably means he he won't be able to finish on that high whereas if he actually targeted just the french open next year and did everything in his power to make that one tournament perfect you'd give him a real chance of winning it but i, I don't think will so, he then I don't, keep going and i don't think you could say like what, whatever he does up until the french won't affect his likelihood of winning if he can win the french He's got as good a chance as any as winning Wimbledon and US as well. We'll know that, like that, early on. We'll, uh, no, because I'm, I'm talking about physically. If physically mm. he's good enough to... If you're physically good enough to win a slam over seven matches, then you're physically good enough to win another slam sure. four or five weeks later and then another one six weeks after that. Mm. I guess the, po the point I'm making though is if you if you keep going with that desire and then you carry on once you've won the last one, you're logically going to continue until the point you're not physically able to do it, meaning it's impossible to end up on the high. Do you know what I mean? Rather than being like, I'm drawing a line under this tournament, I believe I can win it, but that's the last one. It's kind of like a continuing addiction that you're then not going to end on a high because yeah, it's, it's impossible. It's, you never it's, stop. It's the, it's, the, it's the drug user's fallacy that you're always just having your last line or your last like injection or your last cigarette. Like There never is a last one because you always think, well, I've, ju I've just had that one and that was great and so I could have another one. And yeah, I, yes. I, I, I wrote some. Rafa Nadal is going to overdose on winning. <laughs> I think he'd be long gone by now if that was the case. Wouldn't yeah. I mean, but but basically, yes. Like I remember years and years ago listening to a guy called Colin Cowherd, who's a, a great broadcaster in the states. He's gone a bit sideways these days since he went to Fox, but he's brilliant. If you like American sports and you want to listen to like a Daily Show or a podcast, then he's quite entertaining. And when Peyton Manning was going through all his kind of rigmarole at the end of his career, he had neck surgery and. He went to the Broncos and like, Cowherd did this big kind of monologue where he's just like, someone needs to have an intervention with Peyton Manning and just, just tell him to stop playing football. He's addicted to playing football and it's not good for him anymore. And, you know, it does feel a bit the same with Nadal. I, I can't really imagine, as you say, George, I can't really imagine a time if he's still winning. He, he I can't see him saying, yeah, fair enough. Like, I, get, I reckon if he wins one major next year, and I, I have no idea whether that's likely or possible, I think it's probably not, 
But I reckon if he wins one major next year, he doesn't retire. That that would be my guess. Because if he wins the French Open next year, exactly as you say, who's to say he won't win the French Open in 2025? But, like, it, it's just... He's not actually it, said, has he, that, that, that he's, that's his, next, his last year? He said probably. He said he said he said probably, which is just it's just typical, isn't it? It's typical tennis um, and kind of typical I mean, Nadal. It probably just... is, isn't it? Probably. Yeah. Okay, he's, he's injured now. It probably is his last year, but then he's got to think. Well, I'm all right, you know, feeling good. Like it's, mm. it's going to depend on the body, isn't it? And you know, as always with Nadal, we don't know the extent of those injuries, so you know, we don't if it's you know with with the foot and what have you, but you know, like. Del Potro retired a year ago and he's talking about playing the US Open because like it's a weird one because to a degree they are old for athletes but also they're still only in their mid-30s and in Del Potro's case early 30s and you look at it and think well a year without any activity your body will recover like if you if you do the right things your body will recover mm. um, so you never know what Nadal's going to be like after nine months without it, so he just goes and recuperates. I mean, knowing him, he'll put himself in some cryotic chamber or something and for, <laughs> like, nine months and just come out to see his kid once a day and, um, <laughs> you know, and what, you never know. What, what do we feel is, like, the more likely scenario that he just doesn't doesn't actually make it to the line at some point and just, just can't get to a French Open or he kind of has, like, a a Federer-esque hammering from, like, her cats at the French Open that kind of sees him off and he thinks, oh, crap, like, the next gen are just absolutely battering me now, my body can't do it. Or do you think it's just Nadal- like, oh, he's not going to get there? Nadal's been there before, though. He had, like, you know, even eight years ago, he had this, like, where we thought it was probably as the run come to an end here. I think Murray absolutely hammered him in Madrid, didn't he? I think Murray beat him something like three and love in a Madrid semi or a final. And he just, he just didn't look great at all. And then you thought, this is probably done now. Um, and then he's, he's back again. But I I think the thing, what, what there's two factors, I think, that will play into it as well that we haven't factored on. Like that, Say he does have this time off, he has this nine months off. You don't know what happens in that, that he might just think, you know what, I'm not missing it at all. And I quite, I'm quite enjoying life now. And that, that could happen. And secondly, it's how much the game moves on. Does the game just change? Because it seems to have changed a bit in the last year even. Like, mm. you look at, like, how Zverev has struggled to come back. Um, and it's almost like the game's changed. Murray, in that three years he was off, it's like the game just moved on a little bit from where he was. The first point you make about, yeah, finding life actually to be quite all right outside of tennis, it, he kind of alluded to that and... I wasn't aware of it at the time because it was in the Spanish portion of his press conference, but read it later. And he said, uh, um, from then on, i.e. like when he retires, I will start another stage which will be different, but it doesn't have to be any less happy. I have to take things naturally. I have plans for the next few months that I haven't made in the last 20 years. Like that, you know, I don't know what the national holidays are like in Spain, but... Presumably, Rafa Nadal hasn't had a late Maybank holiday weekend in a few years because he's always had other things to do. And yeah, I can. I mean, I, I don't know him that well, obviously, but my impression is that he does have interests outside of tennis. You know, he's a very keen golfer, and while he is a ball monkey and he loves training for four hours a day, 
I think he does have other things that he's interested in, and you know he loves his football. And um, I can see, as as you mentioned, Calvin, he's he's got this kid now, and he's obviously got a wife that he's not seen a huge amount of over the years because he's been busy playing tennis. And yeah, life life kind of ca- can catch up with you if you like. George, do you, do you think, in answer to Calvin's other point, that the the game could have moved past him in the meantime? Yeah, I mean, Calvin's reflections about his previous times, there have been points where I've thought, oh, Nadal's absolutely done it. There's, there's no way he's going to come back. And, and the time the time that might prove the most kind of pivotal, actually, when reflecting on Nadal's career, I, I think in some ways, was actually Djokovic's complete mini meltdown in 2017. Because like, the previous year, he absolutely hammered Nadal at the French Open. You know, it was like such a one-sided kind of beat down. And you're kind of thinking, God... Djokovic is actually just too good for them all now. You know, this is over. This this guy's done it. Federer and Nadal are never going to win anything again. And then Djokovic kind of carted himself off to some sort of weird mental um, asylum, <laughs> if you like, and kind of completely lost his head. Um, and just sort of opened the door back for Nadal and um, Federer to really kind of come and win these kind of swan song grand slams. And you know, there have been other times since there were, you know, I think like Nadal, Djokovic, Australia as well. You know, that was that was brutal. Like, you know, you're just looking at Nadal there like, God, I don't understand how this guy's ever going to win another slam that's not on clay. And then you're looking two years later, he's beating Daniel Medvedev in five sets. You know, the guy just, there have been so many times you try and write him off just physically and in terms of like actual tennis. And he he just always comes back. It feels just pointless to kind of say he's not going to adapt. And you know he's going to work so hard to do it. You know he's he works harder than anyone any athlete I've ever seen in any sport. He's so intense all the time. Like it's crazy. So I, I I don't I don't feel the game will pass him back to such a degree, particularly not on clay. Just the fact you know he brings so much to a stadium, so much intensity that it feels like he can kind of bend it with his own mind and make it a bit more of a mental battle than it is in some ways. I, I totally agree with George there. He has this more competitive charisma than I've ever seen any tennis player have, I would say with possible exception of McEnroe, how he used to bend a crowd to, to his will. But um, I think that a couple of points that I think that that's what I think he... I mean, when I said about the game changing, George, I, I, I meant specifically when he's not there. I think if he was playing then I don't think the game would move past him because he adapts to it. I think what we've seen recently, though, is when players have, have stepped out for a long period and when they've come back, they've struggled to just to fall back in line with it. Um, I think what I'd say is the thing that I think he will struggle the most with, and I've said this, I, I saw him earlier on this year, I don't know, can't remember which tournament it was at, maybe back end of last year, where he was just doing that thing where he's just commanding the crowd and the crowd are going nuts, and he's won one. And I just thought, then how does how is he ever going to step away from this 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 thing of having? We'll never experience it. Most people won't. Of of this thing of controlling twenty thousand people to your will and chanting and cheering for you, and their 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 eyes are solely focused on you. And it must be such a buzz and such a thing that to 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 decide right, I'm just never going to have that again. That's it. It's done. Um, which I. I I think that might be the thing he struggles with the most. Um, interestingly, slight slight veering off topic. I I do think that I don't see him being a coach, if I'm honest. Um, and I think that all of those big four, I think, will struggle to become coaches, um, purely for the reason that by to do what they've done, 
they are such unique individuals and and how they think and how they see the game and how they live their life there's they they could only do that by being so unique and i think they will struggle to deal with any person who's not of that same mindset as they are and i think it's unlikely that we're going to get people like that other than you can maybe say alcaraz but we don't know enough about him at the minute like i can't see like like there's no way any of them all of them would do their nutting with alex verif all of them <laughs> would do their nutting with holger rune all of them would do their nutting with medvedev just because that they're not this those guys are so unique that and this is a problem that all great ex-athletes struggle with that they can't understand why people are not like them it's always yeah. the problem it's always the problem it's nothing to do with coaching techniques or anything like that they can learn them but they just don't understand why why do these why does this person who i'm coaching not think like me on everything and that's where yeah. all they're always the downfall is I mean, I'm sure I've told this story on the podcast before, but it's the Glenn Hoddle thing. When, yeah. When he was, you know, he was only just retired and managing Tottenham and standing there saying, all right, all you've got to do here is take a touch, turn, hit a 40-yard pass, get it back, stick it in the top corner. Right, you don't know how to do it, I'll do it. He would do it, and all the players would stand there and say, well, we can't do that, mate. Like, you're, you're much better than us. And it makes me think, who, who do we think is the best... Um, like if you give their, them as a player and them as a coach a mark out of ten, who has the best combined score, George? I I kind of feel that this period for Murray will actually set him in the set him in the best place to do it. Like you know, people have always said he's very good at thinking about the game, which he is, but he actually is experiencing what it's like not to be <laughs> that kind of unique, <laughs> incredible I, I, person right now. Like that I think will put things George, in perspective what... potentially. I think what I'm saying, though, George, is that, and James is right then, that, that is a, a thing as well with Glenn Hoddle, where they, they often can't understand why people are not as good as them. And that, that's, that's a big thing. But there's also the next aspect of it is why they just can't understand the mentality. If, if, you, listen to like, if you listen to Roy Keane talk about his time at Sunderland and Ipswich, you can mm. see the frustration that he has, that he was having to deal with these idiots every <laughs> single day. Like, and it's nothing to do really with their quality of players. He just can't understand why am I dealing with these idiots? And then he goes back to talking about his his days at United when like, and it's almost like these are the people that I should have been dealing with. These are the people, that, and and that that's how I see it. In terms of the question you asked there, George, I, um, James, I guess it's probably. Although again, I think it's it's a unique situation. I guess it's probably Edberg. Um, he had quite a successful time with. I mean, maybe it's Lubacic. Carlos Moya. Yeah, but Nadal was already. I think it's Lubacic actually. Cause Nadal was already just clubbing everybody before Moya. Ferrero. Again, I mean, he's, okay, got, he's been gifted. How, yeah, how, it's yeah. just been dropped on a, you know, dropped on a generational talent. We don't know what mm. else Ferrero can do. Whereas Lubacic was a top ten player in the world, and he basically resurrected Federer's career. Mm. Like Federer wasn't Federer wasn't winning anything before Lubacic came on board. So yeah, that's my. Um, you could say Becker again, but. Again, did he make any difference to Djokovic? Like, Not positive. Whereas again, like, I think when you look at what 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 they took, what, where they took the player from where they were, and then what they did after that, I think it's probably Lubacic, top ten player in the world, and mm. then made a tangible difference to Federer. You'd you'd possibly push back on the Roy Keane example from the perspective of you know the only people these guys are going to coach in their first job. Let's be honest, is going to be someone who's 
either destined for the top 10 or is a top 10 player. So, you know, by that very definition, they're right in the kind of elite. So, you know, you kind of half expect, I know they're not going to be necessarily as good as them, but you could see Nadal potentially, although I agree with you, I don't think he will go into coaching, being parachuted into as part of Carlos Alcaraz's team to kind of give that final mental lift if he has a little dip when he's 24 or whatever. And then you're already dealing with someone who's pretty exceptional and whatever. I, I don't see it as the same as like Roy Keane going down to like Sunderland Ipswich. These guys aren't going to go and manage someone who's 100 in the world. No, no. but then, you know, we're talking about Alcaraz there. You forget that like, you know, what Zverev was the number three. Like Tsitsipas is still remarkably like the fourth best tennis player in the world. Can you imagine that Nadal would just be pulling what remaining hair he has out, um, just dealing with Tsitsipas every day. I mean, imagine just like every day, just be like draining Tsitsipas's confidence in that backhand, wouldn't he? Just, just I, like... I just, I also think like the the conversations those two would have because like Nadal's English is sometimes a bit difficult to understand because he he speaks very fluently but not always very like logically, if that makes any sense. Like his English is not very good, but it's very fluent. Whereas Tsitsipas speaks English perfectly, but no one ever has a bloody clue what he's talking about. <laughs> just speaking in riddles relentlessly. I just kind of imagine them having dinner together and not having a clue what the other one is saying for the entirety of the meal. I mean, Nadal's English is kind of confused a bit by the fact that he says no so often. Like 60%, 60% of the words that he says are no, no? Yeah, no, no. He's, he's important, no? And he never says it, he just says is. Yeah. Are we um, are we slightly overlooking Lendl in the perspective of it's just someone to sit there who actually inspires yeah. all that good? You yeah, know, perhaps. that they could do that, couldn't they? You know, that that's the sort of scenario I kind of see in like ten, fifteen years. You know, one of these guys again, though, very unique in. situation. Like, w- would anyone, would any other player want Lendl other than Murray? It's a. It's just a very I mean, unique by, situation. By, by the evidence available to us, no. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't think he's ever like threatened to coach anyone else. Yeah, but again, it was like Murray went and got him specifically because this was a guy who struggled in his Grand Slam finals hmm. at the start of his career, and he thought, right, who can I bring in who can add that little bit of extra? But I do think it's a generational thing. It's like now, with the exception of Alcaraz, there's no as that generation moved on of like the serious mentality player i don't know so will we so if murray only went for lendl because he lost his first four slam finals are we going to get someone in 15 years who only goes for murray because they're also going to have lost their first four slam finals and the chain kind of continues it's past, <laughs> it? i again i maybe maybe i'm going to say this every time you suggest a new coach for stefan sitsipas but i just can't Imagine Murray getting on board with Stefan Sitsipas. Imagine him blowing his nut when Sitsipas goes <laughs> takes the toilet break in the middle of um, <laughs> middle of the session. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, just starting a row about like this is what happened in the 2020 US Open. <laughs> I knew you were at it. I knew it. <laughs> Whether or not we think they're actually good at coaches, I mean, let's be honest. The one of the best things tennis could do is try and get force these guys into some sort of kind of coaching job in the mm. next kind of five years when they finish. I mean, that, that would be pretty dynamite if you had like a Gilles Savara type storming off like Federer leaving, uh, uh, you know, I mean, Felix Auger Aliassim after he's just like great smashed content. his racket or something. They've made so much money though as well, haven't they? It's like the footballers thing now. They've made so much money. Like like Lendl have made a fortune, but, you know, not nothing like what these guys are. These guys won't mm. ever have to work again, ever. 
mm. like to, to even to enjoy the lifestyle that they live now. Whereas guys like, you know, I suspect guys like um, Edberg, although he'll have made a lot of money, and Lendl, there was probably a number that could could be sort of improve their life that that somebody could come and say, "Do you fancy this?" Whereas there's no number that like the money's completely irrelevant to Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, and Murray. But yeah, I, I think... think I I don't know whether they all would, but I think there is a part of all of their brains that would see it as attractive as an opportunity to achieve something else. Like, Federer, I think I can see maybe doing it. Like, I I can't imagine Nadal doing it, but maybe there is a part of his brain. You know, he set up the academy. He's very very pro talking about that. Um, Djokovic, I can 100% see being a coach. Maybe not a very good one, because he's insane. Um, But, like, I can definitely see him thinking that he would be good at it, and, and maybe he would be, I don't know. I, th- I, I mean, most the of them like... have tried it. Most of them have tried it. I'm mean, like, Agassi's had his little stints, but again, Agassi fell out with Djokovic. He was like, I can't deal with this guy. Mm. But that was in that was in the the meltdown period that George spoke about there. Mm. But he was basically going, I'm, I'm just can't be doing with this guy. I think the thing is with these four, I kind of just Murray's Murray's what I feel is most likely, just because the other three I kind of see going off to do very different things. Like Federer's got a business empire let's be honest like yeah he has got a load of stuff going on that i really don't think the coaching feels like as appealing um nadal i kind of can see actually like trying to have a crack at getting on the pga tour or something you know just throw himself into something completely random <laughs> and mental like that Djokovic, you can see just becoming the Ser- serbian president or something yeah i mean basically I, I would almost certainly <clears throat> assume that that is what he will do i mean Whereas i guess Murray, from- it's less clear Maybe, but for both Federer and Murray, you know, coaching would actually be quite a good PR exercise. I mean, look, we we, we all know one coach who treats coaching as a twenty four seven PR exercise, and it's very Calvin good. Calvin Beton. It's not not who I was thinking of. Um, you know, it's it's it is a very good way of getting your name out there because. People like talking about coaches. That you know, they they find it interesting because it is interesting. And even if Federer were just there, like you know, alongside two or three actual coaches, you know, a bit like the college system, I guess, where you've got the head coach who's sort of the manager, and then the assistant coaches who will do all do the actual tennis coaching. But if you had Federer there, basically just selling shoes and making sure that people remembered who he was by being pictured at every match, then I, I can see the appeal. I'm just looking actually at the uh, the top ten over thirties, or, or just the over thirties rankings, and sort of in my mind's eye trying to see who might end up being a coach. I think I think Dan Evans is the highest ranked coach in the world at the moment in the over thirties. Um I was just thinking there on Federer, like something I meant to bring up a couple of weeks ago. Like, is Federer living the exact life that you would live if you were just absolutely loaded and that age? He just seems to be having a great retirement, doesn't he? It, what in what sense? Well, it's just like he seems to be spending quite a bit of time with his family, but then enjoying all these like events. Like he was at the Met Gala, the only person who wasn't dressed ridiculously at the Met Gala. Um, <laughs> and then I saw he's on somewhere in like Africa at the minute on some trail or something. He just seems to be like, like you know, doing everything that you do and just really being content and comfortable with with his life, which is I think you know it's great to see. But mm. he, you know, but enjoying it at the same time. He, I think I saw this week, interestingly, he and Serena Williams are technically 
the only two tennis players in inverted column commas to be the uh, in the top 50 best paid t- athletes in the world they're still kind of on the list okay. which is, right? is quite quite interesting from the perspective of <laughs> where tennis is going at the minute is Osaka not in there she earns an absolute fortune doesn't she apparently not I haven't seen the list I saw someone tweet about it um, I mean as we know these lists are like, yeah. fairly well do you declare it yourself that's the thing they yeah. basically I know from friends who work in that industry they basically the magazines ring up the management and say how much money has he earned this year <laughs> that's that, that's how it works. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a bit of a a bit of a myth, really. But you know, gets people talking. Um, right, let's move on. Uh, you mentioned the Met Gala, George, which means I can mention the fact that Emma Raducanu uh, has been at a Dior event in Mexico, uh, walking without crutches and um, still bandaged on one hand. But go on, George. You uh, it shockingly wasn't me who brought up the Met Gala, but it was our fashionista Calvin who brought Sorry, it up. Sorry, I beg your pardon. Yeah, I should have should have noted that. Um, but I just thought it, we, we were in danger looking at the order of play of not mentioning Emma Raducanu at all, so I thought I'd just let you all know that she's in Mexico. Um, and I'm sure that's all we need to say about it. Uh, let's have a question. Uh, we've got one from Tino on email. Remember, if you want to email us, you can do. It's tennisunfiltered at gmail.com. Uh, Tino says he and his buddy Zach are huge fans and they regularly swap voice messages, basically have a podcast of their own on WhatsApp, uh, swapping voice messages, talking about the latest episode and our takes and views. Uh, great to hear from you, Tino. He says, I have a question for you guys regarding the rise and fall, uh, rise and potential fall of Team and Zverev after their injuries. Both from a player and coaching perspective, how are they able to recover from these severe injuries and potentially get back to the top? given that they face stronger opponents in the first rounds of bigger tournaments, are used to continuous success and a place in the top 10, still lack physical strength and even lack trust in their bodies uh, and are being mocked by Medvedev, uh, at least in the case of Zverev. Um, I would especially be interested to hear Calvin's point of view, aren't we all? Uh, what kind of role coaches play in that kind of lengthy and gruelling comeback, which might not even be a successful comeback at the end? I know you're not Zvera's biggest fans, that's an understatement, uh, but I'm sure you have interesting thoughts to share uh, on both of them, Zvera and team. Best wishes from Hamburg, Germany, where Zach and I are going to be mocking the European Open soon for their uninspired grey-haired spectators, their absolutely insane self-esteem, where they claim they are the centre court of the world, and their ability to magically produce semi-finals, which remind us of a second round 250 matchup. Uh, thanks for that Tino um, it's probably the funniest thing I've ever seen a German write um, so <laughs> GG on that one uh, Calvin well, I mean maybe let's start because we touched on it a little bit already actually by, by coincidence um, with Zverev and team coming back from those injuries I mean I would suggest that Zverev looks like he pretty much is on the way back and team isn't I mean what? why is there a difference um, well, first of all, I mean, Hamburg, great city. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll say that. So, you know, I wouldn't mind going to the Hamburg Open, to be fair. Sounds like um, you'd improve it. Take your uh, racket. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Uh, I, had, I had an interesting karaoke night in Hamburg once where um, there was a particularly skillful group of... We went into a karaoke bar and I thought, geez, these Germans can't have sing. Turns out the uh, cast and crew of the Lion King uh, theatre show had just rolled in there about an hour before. <laughs> so, um, you basically but, got uh, a free show. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, uh, what was the question? Zverev and team. Um, I mean, I find them both a bit different, to be honest. Like, Zverev, I really thought would have been back somewhere near by now. 
because his career wasn't it was it was a terrible injury but it wasn't one of those that players don't come back from it was mm. basically a whack guess what you'd call in football like a an impact injury or something Ro- rolled his ankle and you know it was it was terrible and but your ankle recovers from it and um it's not had any lasting impact on his game i don't think so i'm surprised that he's still struggling so much because you now think we're even getting to the stage where even the match practice would have um would be be back to somewhere where you, where you would hope it would be i mean how long has he been back now he must have been back Five or six months, has he? Since that, the yeah, and and to be fair, I mean, he, you know, he is winning matches. Like he, he won he's two still matches. Losing Monte Carlo. these random ones, though, isn't he? It's like he's mm, not Christopher O'Connell in Munich. And, yeah, um... I, I think it's interesting though with him in that for a period before he went on a great run, like at the start of last year. But before that, he was, he was struggling. He wasn't, you know. I think for all his bravado and all that, he's a bit of an egomaniac. I do think he has some mental frailties about his game and he seemed to have got over them. Obviously, second serve was crap and he's a terrible volleyer, but he'd seemed to have like managed to paper over those quite sufficiently and got himself on a run. And I guess when the injury comes, all that comes comes back and you've got to start from scratch on that one. So I'm surprised that, um, that Zverev has struggled as much as he has. Um and I'd still be surprised if that continues. I still expect to see him at some stage start winning again. Um, team's different in that his career, his injury was career changing. As I've said before, he, he, he had to change his game. Not only his game, he had to change his shot. Um, and probably his best shot as well. He still moves great when I've watched him. His backhand's still a very good one-handed backhand. But he doesn't have a forehand, which is where his winners used to come from. And it was a mm. huge shot. And he now just has an, an okay forehand. But it's nothing special at all. And I, I really hope that he can get find a way back. But as, as I've said before, I don't really see him finding a way back into the top 10 in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, in regards to what the coach does, I mean, it's a tricky period. You know, I mean, I'm... And good friends with with Colin Beecher, who's Kyle Edmonds' coach, who's been Kyle's been struggling with injuries now for about two and a half years, and you know I I, I feel for Beach because a lot of the time you're you're obviously you're loyal to your player, and everything every conversation I've ever had with Beach is full on loyalty to his player, but it must be strange because you're, you're coaching a a t- tennis player who's who's not playing tennis, and you know you're there basically for encouragement and that kind of thing, and then. When there is some comeback, you're basically it's very slow, and you're just you're just helping them. You're just trying to be there for them, and in that mm. period, but you know there's not a great deal you can do because you you like to leave it in the hands of the physios and the S and C coaches until the tennis can play a major part. I have to say, I I met Beach for the first time in Australia and spent a bit of time just chatting, and I cannot think of a better bloke to have when you're going through like a. He's, he's a great guy. Great just guy. like just a very kind of calming energy and yeah. you know he's a, he's a bit of a giraffe of a bloke and just kind of lollops around and i i can imagine he's a, a useful guy for Carl he's writing Cameron. a book actually i Is saw he? last week yeah writing a book mm. i think he's got a publisher and what have you so that'd be really interesting just about oh, yeah. i think his his life on playing and coaching and then some some tips and that kind of thing so mm. that'd be really really excited to read more of that what is he uh going for the headline life's a beach <laughs> I think it's called. I think it's called the playbook. Actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Self self help books. That's that's where all the money is. That's for sure. 
Um, well, I hope that sort of answers your question. George, you're always keen to talk about Dominic Team. Yeah. I, I, it's all very sad, really. As Calvin says, there's still a lot of attributes to his game that are good. I, I think he's actually doing quite well, considering how limited his, his forehand is. I mean, if you're watching his matches at the minute, you are kind of watching a little bit between your fingers at points. Um, but he is still beating some people, and you know he's a very dedicated hard-working guy um a graduate of the gunter school of excitement um <laughs> yeah I, I agree with calvin there on zverev i i'm kind of i'm expecting him to get back to that level i thought he was playing some amazing tennis last year which you know i say begrudgingly um <clears throat> but it is interesting it's it, it's never no two players are the same when coming back from injury i always think you know and even even the same player can be very different coming back from one injury to another. I don't think it's, you know, sometimes you just get back in the groove quite quickly and others just feels like it takes a few months and there's always that kind of turning point. And, you know, for Zverev, it felt like that turning point might have come. Was it again, was it Monte Carlo where he played Medvedev and had that really tight kind of mm, night Lost 7-6 in the um, third, yeah. You know, that that's the sort of match that can kind of suddenly turn things confidence-wise. And since then he's, you know, maybe dips a little bit again. Um, but yeah, um, it's 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 an interesting interesting thing to watch, like how these guys come back or don't. And yeah, we mentioned Del Potter earlier as well, didn't we? You know, he's had some kind of really, really amazing, remarkable comebacks, but they have on they have often taken a lot of time for him to to get back into the groove. We remember the highs, but we we miss out all the kind of long lows that often come with these things. So. Certainly wouldn't rule out Zverev coming back. Team, as much as I would love it, because I love him and he's a great player, one of my favourite players ever to really watch, actually, um, at his peak. Um, I can't really see it right now. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it's kind of slightly to echo what you've both said, but I think Zverev's ankle injury specifically, albeit whenever I look at Zverev, I think his ankles must be under a tremendous amount of strain just because he just doesn't look like a logical-sized man. Um, I think once he gets that confidence back, which I'm sure has taken time, but he seems to be getting it back, um, and I've no doubt that his first match, if he gets a match on Chatrier, that'll be a bit of a moment because it was a pretty traumatic injury. Um, but as Calvin says, like he's not had to change the way he plays because of it. Um you know, he's not had to change the way he moves, as far as I can tell. So, I think it's a, a little bit different in that sense. Uh, I hope that answers your question, Tino. Um, feel free to send more in, um, however you'd like to email, DM. I mean, email is actually better because I'm very bad at checking the uh, tennis unfiltered Twitter DMs. Unfiltered tennis. If you want to follow us on Twitter, by the way, and uh, maybe we'll end up out in Hamburg for the European Open. I, that sounds like one I might be able to uh, skip over the water for. Uh, let's move on to the women's game. Uh, just as the men's draw for the French Open feels blown wide open, uh, so too does the women's. Iga Shontek withdrew from the third set of her match against Iga Rybakina. Uh, she's in a battle to be fit for the French Open. She, she said on social media that uh, she's had a scan on her thigh injury, that she's hopeful, optimistic. She's booked her flights, so she will be in Paris, whether fit or not. Um, but does seem pretty optimistic. I mean, George, if if she comes in carrying something, you know, I think it's hard to... We don't have much of a playbook for 
kind of how Svantec deals with injuries, albeit she's had a sort of minor rib thing earlier this year. But I feel like with the way she's playing at the moment, it actually would have a pretty big impact. Like her defence is so improved and her movement is so improved that a thigh injury in particular would be a bit of a, a worry. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, As much as we kind of sometimes go after Djokovic for kind of how injured is he, you know, there, there is definitely a problem to a degree, whatever that degree is, I'm sure. Um, but he's had a long history of getting experience of those moments and dealing with it in the biggest moments and kind of knowing how to manage it and what to do and how to kind of mentally deal with it. But in the early stages of his career, that wasn't the case. And he had a lot of kind of retirements and, you know, it, in, he had Federer kind of going after him a little bit at one point and then he had to kind of grow and learn from it. So for someone like Sviantec, I'm not saying anyone's going to be going after her if she retires from a match or whatever, but, you know, it's not something... I forget how old she is now. She's still 23, something like that, maybe even slightly younger. Um, it's probably not something she's really had to deal with in a kind of great expense. 21. God, um, mm. and, and that really does highlight it, to be honest. Like, yeah, know, exactly. Guys like Djokovic being like in his mid-30s, years after, after years of experience on the tour, knowing how to do it, and whatever it is going to be difficult and i think the bigger worry in some ways is that there are players there who will really fancy their chances of beating her anyway um mm. i said last week before she got injured that i still thought spiontek would have sabalenka and Rybakina's numbers on clay at roland garros but they've both picked up clay court titles they're not thinking like that they've both beaten spiontek on clay you know, okay, albeit Sviantec retired against Rubakina in their match. But they'll believe. And they can beat her on any surface, you know. They they are hit brilliantly. And if your defences are weakened and your movement's not so good, they're not two players you want to be chasing the ball after. So I think... I, I think this is really open. I, I'm, I have possibly relegating her to exactly level with Sabalenka and Rubakina, which I did not think I'd be doing before this tournament. But mm. um, yeah, I, I, I fear for her, to be honest. I'd probably even slightly lean towards Sabalenka being the favourite now. Well, just to, to focus on Rubakina briefly, because um, she obviously did pick up a title, as you mentioned, uh, this week, winning in Rome, receiving about, what, four times less prize money than the uh, the men's winner, which is... One of the many travesties about women's tennis at the moment. But anyway, uh, not going to get into that today. Um, I was doing my power rankings for the French Open, which is where I pull together a load of data, create a little statistical model, and then try and rate all the players, um, or at least all the top players. And one of the metrics that I use is career clay tour level percentage. So your your win percentage of all uh, your tour level matches. And Schwantek is top on that metric, as, as she is on most of them, 87%. Second is Goff, who's 69.5%. And Rybakina is third of the best players in the world, 69.1% on career percentage. So I think we never really talked or thought about her as much of a clay court player because, well, you know, because she's a big hitter and a big server and you, you don't think that that's the kind of person who, who does well. And But, you know, she... She did make the quarterfinals of the French two years ago, which is not to be sniffed at. And she's made the quarterfinals of the French in doubles as well. And, you know, she's she's played some good clay court tennis. So 
I think probably to she's a little bit underestimated. I know that she obviously is a Grand Slam champion and reached the final in Australia and has been playing brilliantly all year, frankly, and has won you know multiple titles and got to final Miami or whatever. But I do think that she's being a little bit underestimated just because of her particular game style. And it'll be really interesting to see how she goes in Paris. Yeah, I think the 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 striking thing from what you said read out there though, James, was how far ahead Spiontek's percentage is. That that's the <laughs> conversation, really. You know, she is the comfortable best clay court tennis player in the world right now. Um so the fact that she's inhibited brings her percentage down to, probably to around where River Keenis is, really. Yeah. You know, it's a kind of ten percent effect in depending on how severe the injury is. I mean, I'd note this week as well. I mean, Ribakina, she's had some good wins in there, but she has had three walkovers as well. I mean, that, that that's fairly unheard of, isn't it? Was <laughs> it three or was it two? Oh, because she had the one in the final as well. Yeah, I suppose so. But, you know, she beat Ostapenko and Vondrasova, you know, fair and square. So, and, and like I said, it's not like she's not won a match all year and then turned up at Rome and been handled a load of walkovers. Um, albeit she did pull out in was it in Stuttgart where she pulled out injured against Harad Meyer so but she seems to be over that anyway um, I wonder what the record is for the most walkovers in one tournament I, I can't remember seeing that many I mean yeah there was Djokovic at the be... US once wasn't there where he yeah he had a 2016 was it there was someone in Australia this year who barely played on the way to the fourth round because of a similar thing I mean it does happen and there was that crazy Wimbledon year I think 2018 when they were like 11 retirements in the first round and they, yeah that's they before they changed the, rules. the prize money rule yeah, yeah exactly um you, you mentioned in the show notes george uh some nonsense with the trophy in rome I, i've already alluded to the uh the prize money oddity that is the men's tournament and the women's tournament being the same thing in rome but having wildly different prize monies um what was going on with the trophy uh, it was just all very odd so i mean I've not I've not watched the whole thing the whole way through, but I've seen clips of them just the crowd booing Ribokina and uh, uh, Kalinskaya. Um, sorry, Kalinina. Sorry, she lost the coach. Lost. <laughs> yeah. was a walkover earlier in Stuttgart, in yeah, um, and then in Rome, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and and it was just so bizarre. Some of the things that were happening, like they, they had the trophy kind of there, and Ribokina just like stood there waiting for them to give it to her and they just don't for a long time it was just all <laughs> such a bizarre cock-up i just don't really know what what was going on i mean that, that was back-to-back tournaments masters tournaments where the women's one of the women's trophy events has been utterly cocked up by the tournament which you know if you'd just seen the backlash from madrid what happened last week and you're organizing rome you're probably thinking Oh, let's let's make sure we get our let's trophy celebrations sure. right now. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I saw I mean, a, lo- it, a lot of people going does. after the WTA and Steve Simon, but you have to say it's probably a complete cock up by the tournament itself. Not yeah, not saying I, Steve Simon's you know the perfect CEO in the world, but it feels a bit harsh to lay lay that one at his door. I'd say. There, there was also a point made that they they didn't get on court until eleven o'clock local yeah. time, but I mean the weather in Rome this week's been awful, and you know like 
I, I sort of some, they, they say they're going to get a roof by the way they want to have a roof on that court by 2026 they bloody need one this has been going on for years <laughs> <laughs> but I don't necessarily like that this just like it happens on Twitter a lot you know like hashtag get a roof like it's it's an expensive thing right like uh, you know you can't just put a roof on every bloody 250 that is in a vaguely rainy part of the world you never get you never pay That's anyone it. anything is it a better spend to get a roof or to bring prize money equal on both sides? That's, That's a great question, I think we know actually. which one we should go for. Um, and I think but we there know was, which one they will go for. <laughs> there, there was some interesting comments though, wasn't there? Because I think, I can't remember who exactly was saying this, but it, the tournament kind of gave the impression that the players still wanted to go on. But I think in the post-match conference, they'd sort of said we would have happily started... Next, well, I think Kalanina uh, basically said, "Well, we didn't really have a choice because, like, yeah. I think they were, I think they were, very, they, they had a packed schedule the next day, and it just wasn't really, really feasible." I think, but yeah, um, it feels like very I, bad scheduling as well, though. I mean, this has happened before. I mean, it, yeah. it's certainly not the first time. I have to say, I mean, given the French Open was an absolute farce last year and a, a complete maelstrom of like sexism and scheduling rows. The, the current kind of febrile atmosphere. The, the ground is so well sown for the French Open to be an absolute disaster. Um, the weather forecast is pretty atrocious as well. Uh, I don't know if they've sorted out the air conditioning in Chatrier, but if the if it's if it's as humid as it was under the roof, the night Zverev got injured against Zverev. Uh, Zverev got injured against Nadal, I should say. Uh, then it's going to be absolute chaos. Um, and everyone is very well like... You know when sometimes there's a news cycle and everyone's really just primed, just like every, everyone's got all the quotes, like they know the questions to ask, they know where everyone stands, and they're just waiting for like the blue touch paper to get lit. That is where we are with like sexism and scheduling in tennis at the moment, and the French Open is the exact place for it to go completely haywire. So that's my prediction for uh, for the French Open is that. Amelie Moresmo is going to have a pretty unpleasant fortnight. Um, that said, I just uh, apropos of absolutely nothing uh, other than I've got qualifying on here. Um, it's all on Discovery Plus, by the way, like multi-court coverage, which credit where credit's due. Quali's multi-court coverage. I can't remember that ever being the case before. Um, but they're playing on. Uh, I can't remember the name of the court. It's the one that's like at the far end of Roland Garros, the sort of sunken mini stadium court. It's a bit Simone Machu. No, that's isn't that the jungle court? That's the greenhouse one. So yeah, not, no, it's, you mean it's, it's the, the other end, the other side, yeah. other side, right? It looks a bit like court three at Wimbledon. Anyway, it's Mahatch versus Lucas Puy, which is a great match for qualies. And it's like you know, it's nine thirty at night there, and it's still packed. It's like it's pretty, pretty. It looks like they've had a really good turnout. I'm pretty sure qualies is sold out Wednesday and Thursday, so they've done a decent job selling tickets. I mean. Some of the qualifying is quite mad, really. I mean, you've got Aslan Karatsev, who's just been to the semi-finals in Madrid, taking on Pierre Huguerbert in the first round of qualifying. I mean, that, that was unbelievable. Uh, the, I could say I could make a lot of jokes about that match, George, and I think almost all of them would have been deleted <laughs> for, le- for legal reasons. Um, so m- maybe best script, but yeah, like um, Coco Van der Weeg is playing. Obviously, I only noticed that because she was playing Fran Jones today. I don't actually know if that finished or yes, Jones beat her straight sets. Well done, well done, Fran Jones. Um, and Ryan Penniston won today in qualies as well. Just just worth noting. Um, Sonny Cartel was like six two five one up. Um, 
against the number 19 scene she lost in three sets it's pretty pretty dis- yeah served for the match twice i think that Ouch. that one might sting for a while um, i'm going to go to nottingham after the uh after the uh, french open and we'll we'll see if she's got over it by then <laughs> what whilst we're on qualifying it was a shame to see burridge pull out wasn't it Sweet. yeah I, I actually um you may know more than me calvin i texted craig the other day but maybe he was still licking his wounds um because yeah she didn't appear in the qualifying draw and there was nothing particularly official but I'm told she's got a niggle that she's not quite over. Um, yeah, I, I think I know Craig told me a few weeks ago that um, there was a, a doubt. So, um, you know, that's I assume that that's what led to it, and she she couldn't play because didn't improve as hmm. you know they they might have hoped. Um, but yeah. I don't have any loads of information on it. I just know that there was a, a question mark on it. I know that she's um, she's already out on the grass, so. That that suggests that she's pretty positive about her uh, her recovery anyway. So um, yeah, shame not to see because she she is effectively the British number one now um, with Raducanu uh, laid out for the next four months. But she, probably winning one match at French Open qualies would have would have ticked her over. But uh, she is British number one elect. Uh, let's it's, say it'd be quite a funny Wimbledon, won't it? Really, if Burridge is going in as number one. I mean, I, I don't think I I can really remember a. A British number one coming into Wimbledon, who I suspect ninety nine percent of the viewers will never have heard of. Yeah. I'm not trying to be harsh there, but you know that's just no. I think that's completely bit. reasonable. Um, like you know, she's she's not she's never been a top one hundred player. Um, she's obviously made huge strides, but yeah, she she will be pretty anonymous to most people. I mean, let's face it, most people couldn't name more than four women's tennis players who are still playing anyway. Um, but yeah, to, most Wimbledon viewers will turn on and go, Jodie Burridge, who is this and I think that's I think that's great. I, that's kind of what I love about Wimbledon, among many other things, um, is that all of a sudden people get really interested in like Alistair Gray and Sonic Artal, and you know they, these people have all got quite good stories one way or another, and it's great that people are actually interested in them. Yeah, and a, a grounds pass that the first couple of days of a slam where you can go and see a home favourite. Home favorite in a very inverted commas, you know, someone from the home country playing, yeah. kind of on on one of their courts. I mean, you, you always get some, yeah, you know, people like Bolter and Watson lobbed out on twelve or eighteen kind of small stadium courts, and the atmosphere is brilliant. And they're really, mm. really good first day tickets. You pick up a grounds pass for what thirty quid, something like that. Yeah, yeah, if you Pretty can get good value get ticket. Yeah, yeah, and and actually, this is uh, this only applies to like a very small number of people, but um, if you like live locally to Wimbledon or even in London you can get in after five o'clock for like practically nothing I think it might be a tenner or something if you turn up at 5 p.m and like my mate who was living a mile down the road would just like a couple of days just came after work like knocked off work an hour early and came and had a beer and sat on the hill and like on a nice afternoon it's a great atmosphere and you know, in London, the pints aren't that much more expensive at Wimbledon than they are in town. <laughs> and if you're lucky, people do just give out their tickets as they're walking out of like centre court yeah. and stuff. You can get on for free at yeah, kind yeah. of five o'clock, and there's normally a match or two going. People are going kind of up uh, yeah. north or somewhere else in the country where it takes a while to get back, and it takes an hour to get across London to even do that. So they have to leave about five or six ish. And yeah, yeah, so. yeah. If you're lucky enough to be to be local, it's definitely yeah worth doing but um that is still some way off uh we talked about the women's we should talk about the men's um Daniil Medvedev winning yet another title in yet another city he's yet to win a title in the same city right I think he's now up to 15 
in 15 different cities. It's his first clay court title since 2015, and that was down in Futures. Uh, he says, hard courts will always be my only love. Well, in tennis, he mentioned, noticing his wife in the stands. Um, but he likes clay courts a bit more now. Uh, and why not? Because he beat Holger Rune in the final. It was a, a, He said they didn't play that well, I thought. Like either of them, I, I thought that was a little bit harsh. I thought the level was was okay, and it was certainly an enthralling. I mean, I, I don't know what you think, Calvin, and I, I know what you think about Holgerun, but um, when it comes to Daniil Medvedev, he's he's pretty box office actually. Like in the same way that Rafa Nadal and Carlos Alcaraz are, I find Medvedev so watchable. Yeah, I mean, the stuff with the dancing. When he beat Sitsipas was just phenomenal behaviour. Like he is the best shit house that we've had in tennis for a good fifteen years. Like I, I can't even think who was better than him then. Like it's 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 unbelievable behaviour. Um, but um, and it's like the thing was you you can you know when he ex when he did it how much Sitsipas had wound him up when he did yeah. it um, last year when he did his little dance which was weird from Sitsipas because Medvedev usually duffs him up anyway doesn't he and he, and he he beat him that once and did his little jig and you could see that Medvedev's just been thinking all that time just you wait just you wait <laughs> like I was surprised he didn't pull out a moonwalk. Like across, um, <laughs> or like a, a wig, like a yeah. Stefanos Tsitsipas wig. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, he's he's a phenomenal competitor, isn't he? Like, you know, he's. I thought, like as we've discussed, I thought maybe he was past his best, but I'd make him, I'd make him, make him joint favorite for the French. I don't know about interesting joint, where I... George's George's percentages are. This <laughs> oh, he's like... rocketed up now. He's rocketed up. <laughs> Yeah, I, mean, I can I... tell you where I can tell you where he is in the power rankings. In the power rankings, he's fourth um, behind. Can Jokic I guess who's Alcaraz. above? Oh. Uh, sorry. Yeah. Well, you can guess number three if you want. I would probably have Rune there still. Just about, yeah. Was my the, 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 so my power rankings are, have quite a lot of historical data in them. Yeah. Okay. So like like so um, is possibly still there. Yeah, Sitsipas is three. So one of the metrics is uh, match wins at Roland Garros in the last five years. Um, I mean, I, I haven't really based this anything on anything other than my own gut feeling. Like, I could do a proper statistical... Well, I couldn't do a proper statistical analysis because I didn't do A-level maths. But, like, you know, <laughs> I, I could spend some more time drilling data, but I, I found it interesting to do this. Um, yeah, George, talk to me about your percentages this week. Yeah, so I th- I'd probably land on Alcaraz around leading the pack at 35% for the sake of argument. <laughs> Uh, then I'd have Djokovic at thirty percent, Medvedev maybe twenty percent. I can't can't do math now. <laughs> You're up to eighty five now. Eighty five. Actually, okay. I'll give Medvedev fifteen. Then I'll give Rune fifteen as well. Can I do that? Okay. I don't know if you're going to change things halfway through. I'm going to lose count. I didn't do it. Okay, I think I can do it. I think that tells me it's a ninety five percent, and everyone else can be five percent. I, I think okay. it's fair. I mean, the only thing I'd say, I'd, I'd actually, like, bizarrely there, I'd forgot about Alcaraz. In my head, I'd thought, thought Alcaraz was injured, but he's not. Yeah, Alcaraz's big favourite, to be fair. Um, but I think it's interesting in that it's one of those, I think it's the first time in a while that it's like the clay is almost irrelevant in it, I think. Cause there's no real clay court specialist in that. And I think probably all those players you've just mentioned, clay's probably their second favourite surface. I think Rune, you'd say, is Claire, his favourite. He 
Yeah, but yeah, he won the Paris. He won the Paris. He has won Paris hurt. Masters, but yeah. I'd say I'd say he would still say. He might say it's Jack Sox won Paris Masters. <laughs> he might say it was his. He might say it's his favourite, but it's not like Miles. You, you wouldn't say he's a clay court player. Yeah, you know, he yeah. can do. He could do just as much on a hard court as he can do on a on a clay court. So it's not like we're looking at and going. You know, the the clay is the determining factor here. I don't think. I think this will just mm. come down to who's the better player, um, rather than the surface. Yeah, I mean, I, I always look at Medvedev and, and I just think he's such a contradiction in so many ways. Like, you know, he's got this absolutely enormous serve and so you think like, like, like hard court, you know, fast hard courts and that should really suit him. And obviously he's won the US Open, but then he's also got to the final in Australia twice and, and then he's also like got these enormous swings. Like, I don't know, Calvin, it, it's maybe something that's worth like looking in slow-mo and kind of breaking down, but... I sometimes wonder whether he really does have such a, you know, because he's so gangly and weird and janky. Like, I look at him and think, oh, you've got these massive swings. You pre- it takes you ages to prepare the racket. Surely you need the clay and the high bounce and the and the sort of time. But is that true? I don't know. Uh, to a degree, but he's also adapted to it. I've never seen him. For as big as those swings are, I've never seen him anybody beat him purely on their taking time away because he doesn't have time to prepare his swings. Mm. Like that—that's never happened. Um, so you can't, you know, it gets to the stage where we're now sort of what four years into his career where he's been very good, and that's never happened. You think probably he just adapts to it, and it, it's yeah. almost like—is it an optical illusion? Like the, well, that's what I are, wondered. Are, are bigger than you know because they're a bit different, but he also stands so far back that you really yeah. struggle to rush him with how far back he stands. Although um, very interestingly, um, in the final, uh, he was actually standing about. He, so usually, I think his average for the tournament was about one point seven meters back, and he was only he was under a meter. And actually, Runa had done the exact opposite and was stood much further back than usual. It's quite interesting, little bit of cat and mouse there. I mean, obviously, it worked better for Medvedev than it did for Rune, um, who did have chances. Like the second set was yeah. proper ding dong, but then kind of, I, I thought he looked pretty fatigued actually. Like he had that match late on Saturday against Kasper Rude, which you know went the distance, and he obviously went the distance with Djokovic as well. So I, I thought his legs caught up with him a little bit, but um, yeah, possible, possible. But um, mm. I think he's taken a step up though as Rune. To be mm. fair, um, mm. like I now think he's established himself as you know one of the five best players in the world he's certainly yeah. better than Tsitsipas um yeah you know he should has he overtaken him yet uh I think he's no. six and Tsitsipas six, is five yeah yeah I mean but, it won't make much difference Pass in terms has, of seedings but um Tsitsipas has final points to defend doesn't he as well yeah yeah exactly yeah um, so I mean I, if you're going to be if you're one of the top two seeds you're probably not going to be wanting to see Rune in the um actually no he doesn't i'm completely lying that was the year before it's 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 rude was in the final last year wasn't it yeah yeah i i I completely can't remember what Sispas did at the french open last year apparently got to the fourth round but i i honestly have almost no memory of it like it's just i don't know why i'm just having a look now he lost to rune in the fourth round yeah yeah Yeah, i remember he did yeah Uh, sorry i was down at the ntc when watching that one Um, right, let's move on from our, us all going demented. Uh, Andy Murray has pulled out the French Open. Uh, he says he's going to go play Surbiton instead. The the classic choice, Paris or Surbiton. Um, the 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 right call, the sensible choice, George. 
I think we disagree on this one. Don't okay, we, interesting. As a group. I, I, my, my personal view is I, I think he should have had a go at the French, and I think he should have done it purely on acknowledging he's not had the best results on clay. Although he did beat Tommy Paul, who's the world number seventeen challenger or not, you know that's still a good result. That yeah, but Tommy Paul is still not quite sure what red clay is. Like he, he's <laughs> just like, what? What is this stuff, man? <laughs> um. I just think the upshot of winning a couple of matches at the French Open, guaranteeing that seeding at Wimbledon or likely guaranteeing it, just makes more sense to me and doesn't really change the schedule that much. It's unlikely he was going to go into the second week at the French Open, I suspect, but you never know. And if he goes into the second week at the French Open, do we really think that damages him that much on grass? I, not for me personally. I just I just felt the upshot was better for what's essentially potentially five or six days more on the grass if he were to lose in the first round anyway. I, I hmm. you know, he, he's got the scheduling power to have said to the French Open, let me play on the Sunday. So he could have really pulled that right back, lost on the Sunday, on the grass Monday if he wanted to be back in the UK. You know, that that doesn't feel that big a shift to me, whereas he's gone, okay, a week earlier, really now. Yeah. So yeah. I just thought there was Can a bigger I... upshot the other way. But I, I know there's inter- a case for the defence. Well, yeah, I'm going to. I'm just going to briefly interject with a Tommy Paul stat. Uh, you can guess the answer. <laughs> uh, do you know how many, and this is notwithstanding, I think he's playing in Lyon tomorrow. Do you know how many of Tommy Paul's last 10 tour-level clay court matches he's won? Well, uh, but this is a bit harsh because he, he did obviously win all those challenger matches that week to get to the final. And that was a stronger no. challenger that I consider a tour event. Um, but if we're going tour, tour matches, I'm guessing it's going to be like one. It is indeed one. Um, he that, that that was why he was playing the challenger because he. I mean, so yeah, a, a challenger at which he then beat Jeffrey Blonkenu, Jury Rudianov, and David Goffin. Like you know, I mean, Goffins. well done, mate. Yeah, yeah uh, spent force, Calvin. I, I don't know whether it's it has been the way that he's looked at it or anything, but I'm looking at the rankings here. And Murray's ranked 41. Mm. If he got 125 points from um, Surbiton, yeah. that would take him to about getting seeded. But that is, I don't know how, No, it, it just under, it'd be borderline. But I don't know if he's fil- I don't know if he's got any zeros on his ranking. But isn't he defending Serbton points from last year as well? Oh yeah, but only semis, I think. Mm. Might be defending semis points, and then, but he might be looking at and thinking something like, if I can get, he might go say Serbton Nottingham, and winning yeah. both of them would get him the seeding. Yeah. And he's probably yeah. Thinking, I mean, I, I think. I mean, I disagree with George vehemently on this, where I think um, he does have a zero on his record, by the way. It's Bordeaux. (laughs) Um, I think he's gained, like, two weeks on the grass by doing this. Like, because he made the decision before the qualifying draw. So that's yesterday, Sunday, Sunday the 21st of May, for people listening in the future. Um, where, where everyone is listening, actually, because that's that's how it works. Um, 
you know, he will have had to be on clay. As you say, George, all right, he might have been on Sunday, but like, he's not going to think about, oh, I'll just go to Pat Roland Garros anyway because I'll just lose first round. That'd be fine. So he's like, he's assuming he's going to make third round because that, that's Andy Murray. So that takes him to at least to Friday. So even that, that sort of like average time he's gained on grass is like 10 days and it, it could be up to as much as two weeks. And I think like his adaptation to surfaces in this latest stage of his career is pretty sluggish. Like he, he's had some really slow starts like the Sunshine Tour or like or coming onto the clay like grass last year i mean serverton last year obviously was a bit of a shit show because the weather but i don't remember him looking great there yeah i guess there's the other thing is is there any positive of getting some best of five set matches under your belt well not if it's gonna a month before wimbledon Wimbledon. well no (laughs) i would i would say like because because of his physical condition at the moment i'd say that's a that's a net negative does he believe he's got a bad physical condition, or is it just? You know? Well, I mean, he just keep getting injured. Like he mm. he he knows that, and he must be like he knows that there is a risk of playing a lot of tennis that he will get injured again. I, I, I think even the the he is the stubbornest man in tennis. I'm convinced of that, but I think even he can see that. Look, I, I hope I'm wrong, and I hope he smashes the grass court season, secures the seeding either way. But I, I think it'd be a real shame for him this season where he has particularly early in the season played some very good tennis and could come into Wimbledon feeling vaguely confident to then draw bloody Novak Djokovic round one and leave with a 1-1-1 one, one, one dripping you know what I mean I, I just feel that it would be really really advantageous for him to get a seeding and this feels like a bit of a risk to me even though I accept he might not have won anyway but this is the big events are the best ones to get points, and this is one of the biggest. And I just kind mm. of think, what the, hell, what the hell was the point of playing the rest of it if you're not mm. even going to turn up to this? Um, I think more likely than Nottingham is he's going to go to Stuttgart and play there. Sorry, Stuttgart, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think he's and he's obviously got final points yeah, to defend there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but the, the flip side is that he, if you remember, he got injured in that final last year and missed Queens. So he, he's kind of on a freebie at Queens. Um, so that might just balance out, and he can pick up enough points. Um, to, and Queens feels feels like it has been weaker the last few years, really. Um, mm. You know, a lot of people choosing Haller at the moment. So, yeah. Although I was, I mean, Alcaraz is playing Queens potentially this year. Um, Not if he wins I mean, the French Open. <laughs> well, yeah, quite possibly. <laughs> Um, I was going to say that Berrettini is as well, but I mean, he's, uh, people may not have noticed actually, but Berrettini's out of the French Open. Um, continued injury, I think it's still this ab problem. It's ab again, it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's it's getting pretty silly and pretty problematic, but he is technically on the start list for Queens as well. So it's actually like the list of people missing the French Open is quite long actually. Calvin. Yeah, that, I was just thinking that about the list of people missing the French Open and that that opens up seeding spots as well because there's yeah. a few in the top top 32, so they're going to drop out. So maybe Murray's only got to get up about another five spaces from where he is I think, now. I think probably so that the um, the seeds at the French go down to Burnaby Zapata Morales, which is pretty incredible when you think about it. Uh, and he is uh, ranked 37 in the world. So if you think about that as a target, um, just to, to fill people in on people who are missing uh, 
because it's news you might have missed because not everyone's on Twitter all day like me. Uh, Nadal, obviously, Berrettini, Karenia Buster, Chilich, Kyrgios, Murray, Brooksby and Sunwoo Kwon all out of the French Open. Uh, that is as of time of writing on Monday night. There, there may be more before the draw. The draw, incidentally, is on Thursday. Uh, it's really annoyingly at 2pm France time, which is 1pm UK time. Uh, it's usually in the evening, which is why I booked a lunchtime Eurostar. And now they're going to do the draw while I'm on the Eurostar. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's worked out really well for me. Thanks. Thanks. Roland Garros Classic. for making a, a late decision and screwing me, Alan. But also, like when you look at, you know, he's, we're laughing a bit about Berrettini there. He's one of the few players who you would fancy to beat Murray on, on grass as well. So mm. he's he's either out or out of form. I mean, I wouldn't favour him to beat Murray on grass this year, even if Berrettini plays the grass. Mm. So you know, you go down the list and you think who who would you favour to beat Murray on grass? I mean, without a doubt, grass is Murray's best surface. So mm. you look at it and go, well, these days, I think, you know, in outdoor yeah. hard would have been. Um, but, you know, you look at, there's not loads of people above him in terms of like, you know, other, other than say, you know, I suppose you've got Alcaraz, Djokovic, you'd probably sort of make Rune favourite against him now. Felix Auger, Alias seems not a great draw on the grass. But other than that... Not Medvedev? What's Medvedev ever done on grass? And he's such a weird mover. He actually did okay last year, didn't he? He had a couple of finals, I think. I think I'd just. That's true. Yeah, he did actually play well on the grass last year. I'd forgotten. Yeah, but it's 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 doing well on the. You know, he's not coming against Andy Murray. Like he's not coming against Mm. two-time Wimbledon champion Andy Murray. I still just think Medvedev would be too good for Murray now. Like surface aside, I'm not sure. Maybe at Wimbledon, Wimbledon's a bit different because it's basically a hard court. But hmm. if they played it like such as Queens or something like that, I'd certainly have Murray favourite. You'd um, have Kyrgios over Murray as well, wouldn't you? Kyrgios won't fit. play. Um, the other player you'd have is Dennis Kudler, of course. <laughs> uh, for, for context, Dennis Kudler has been the subject of some debate in the uh, Tennis Unfiltered <laughs> WhatsApp group this week. But I haven't totally been following. Um, but maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll leave that one for now. Um I just have one more thing I wanted to add, which is uh, delighted to see Jack Draper back playing this week. He's been not played for the best part of six weeks. Um, he's had a, an ongoing ab oblique problem, which they're just trying to be very cautious about. Uh, he's back in Lyon this week. He beat Alexandra Muller, 6-2-6-3, so um, a positive result there. He's playing Mirmir Kekmanovic uh, tomorrow, which I think is probably going to be a pretty... Stiff test of his fitness and clay court game. Uh, I, would anyone like to hazard a guess at how many tour level clay court matches Jack Draper has played in his in his entire tennis tour career? Level. Yeah, he's probably played the odd one qualifying. Yeah, I was going to say f- one it's, or two. It's, it's five, incredibly. Five. Um, okay. Yeah, but just the sort of reminder of quite how. Uh, how rookie he is in in his career, but uh, yeah, hopefully we'll see him at the French Open flying the uh, British flag because the the numbers are dwindling swiftly. Um, I, I don't know how much more anyone else has for me, George. I, I've managed to exhaust your list. I don't think I've actually uh, run out of um, or failed to pick anything up from your list. But maybe you've got some other business. I, I have one piece of other business, excellent, um, which I forgot to put on the list and I realised I hadn't put on the list about twenty minutes ago. And it's just a reminder to you all that we will be launching Fantasy Tennis again this week. 
Yeah, that is exciting. That's that's a reminder that I need to make sure the spreadsheet is in good working order. Um, but yes, I, the the French one is good because the draw's on Thursday, and obviously I don't open it up until the draw. Uh, but it's tough because the tennis starts on Sunday. Now, what I might be tempted to do if I can do the admin is close it on Sunday morning when the tennis starts and then reopen it on Sunday night, but with the caveat, and I'll delete them from the form, that you can't pick any of the players who have already played. Now, I would not rely on that if you, you know, I would say get your entry in on Saturday night, Sunday morning, but I will try and do that to just to allow people who are, you know, frankly like me and disorganised and forget to do it. Um, but yes, you, you too can get involved and beat Calvin at Fantasy Tennis because he usually forgets well, to do I, it I, or does it last minute. I was going to say, I'm fairly sure Calvin missed the last slam. He was out injured like at Nadal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Calvin, Calvin was taking a few months away from fantasy just so that he could come back and be, be fully refreshed. Uh, will, but yes, will yes it will be, be open. Will the two of you be getting together in Paris when you... I think I think I we think might so, uh, yeah. we might see if there's a few. I think they sell wine in Paris, um, which oh, I'm really? told is rather good. Uh, so I think we might sample a few Van Rouges. Um, it's it's not like Barnsley, the wine region of the UK, is it? Is <laughs> <laughs> is Barnsley? <laughs> I th- oh, I saw, it's funny because I saw some article yesterday about how. So, this, well, I don't know if it was an article or maybe it was some on the politics program yesterday morning. Some some Tory MP was selling one of the benefits of Brexit is that Britain can now have its own vineyards because some rule, some some like restriction has been removed that we can make more wine here. And I was thinking like, oh yeah, but that's going to sell great, like Barnes, Barnsley Vineyard. I'm sure the I'm sure the people of Provence will be like queuing up to get a beer to get get some grapes that have been grown in Barnsley. Very very boringly, uh, the British climate is becoming more and more attractive to wine. Uh, yeah, wine growers and well, actually, North, you've got it as high as Yorkshire now. I think some you know, the, some of the Yorkshire and some of the English sparkling wine is award winning. English brilliant. And actually, yeah. even more boringly, one of the main reasons the Romans invaded Britain the first time in the first century was because of wine, because Britain's a very fertile country and wine in the first century was crap anyway. It was borderline undrinkable. You had to water it down. Um, but the British grew quite good wine. So they actually found, they found like wine carriers from, from that era, lots of amphorae in, in places like Torquay and exported from the South Coast. As it happens, actually, I've got a topical one. Seeing as we're discussing alcohol here and on a tennis podcast, and we mentioned Dennis Cudler there. Dennis Cudler's actually a, a whiskey connoisseur. Um, is he? He is, yeah. And when we were in Dallas, I got talking to him about various things, and he gave me a fact that I've regaled a few people with uh, since. I don't know. Whether, I'm interested to know whether you guys know this or any of our listeners. Do you know what the difference between a bourbon and a whiskey is? Ah, uh, oh, you know. Do I know? Oh, is it how long it's aged for? No, I is always it the thought barrel that. It's no, aged it's in? the barrel. Ev- everyone always says one of those two, and I thought that. <laughs> And it's not. Is it that this they put a bourbon biscuit in the barrel? No, it's terrible, <laughs> terrible. Yeah, get out, get out. I can tell you, it's to be a bourb, to be a bourbon, it has to be made in Kentucky. Is that right? And anything mm. declaring to be a bourbon that hasn't been, what do they call it? Not made? Is it 
brewed or distilled distilled yeah sorry uh, anything that's distilled and not in kentucky cannot be called a bourbon that's super interesting yeah it's, uh, it's, it's of me every day well don't say ne- we don't give you an eclectic podcast calvin you'll be up for philip schofield's job soon i'm sure yeah well we can say next week on unfiltered alcohol that doesn't quite <laughs> <the same>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah tennis unfiltered but we can't spell uh, right, that is all we've got time for. Uh, thanks so much for listening, as always. Make sure you follow us on all the various social media platforms. Unfilter Tennis on Twitter. Um, email us, tennisunfiltered at gmail.com. Just, just send me your thoughts. I had a nice chat with someone called Pam this week, um, just talking about tennis on email, which is something you can do sometimes. Uh, anyway, most importantly, please do come back next week. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Sports Social Podcast Network.